0: And we're going to be talking about fraud in New York. Thanks for joining me today as we all quarantine in place uh, and deal with the COVID-19 pandemic. Uh, Today we're going to talk about a really fun topic. I'm going to try to keep it light and a little bit fun. Uh, We're going to be talking about fraud. So I'm going to talk a little bit about the jurisdictional standards for fraud in New York. I'm gonna talk about some recent case-level decisions which uh, kind of made me giggle uh, or annoyed me. And so for those reasons, I'm gonna be sharing them with you. I'm gonna try to give as much practical advice and a few takeaways that we can all use as we look at our cases in New York on Fraud. And of course, I'm going to be answering your questions. I'm gonna start off today by kind of veering into a different topic, which is the response to the COVID-19 pandemic and answer a few questions, or just give a little bit of information, particularly some breaking information about what's going on in the courts in New York and New Jersey. Um, I live in New Jersey. Uh, As of today, my three kids are now uh, being homeschooled essentially. uh, And that's been going on, uh, it was announced Friday, and we're expecting to have them with us. So my six-year-old, my eight-year-old, and my 10-year-old are all uh, there working at the dining room table and my wife is playing the role of school teacher uh i want to just mention to everyone uh our business plan here at lois we're keeping the doors open uh we are still responding to clients timely we're getting everything filed we're answering we're filing answers to claims in new jersey we're responding and appearing in new york Uh, although the new jersey courts this morning announced that there is going to be a three-week no appearance rule, the courts will remain open, but there will be no appearances in courts for the next three weeks. I did speak personally this morning with the director and chief judge of the division of workers compensation, and there is no plans to be able to hold hearings uh, virtually or remotely at this time. Uh, In New York, all of the courts are officially closed to appearing in person, although the courts are open for remote attendance and we do anticipate Hearings will go forward normally in New York. Uh, Several of the hearing points have physically closed and those include the two busiest, Queens or Jamaica hearing point and the Brooklyn hearing point that was announced on Sunday. Uh, But going forward, the board has also announced this morning at 8.15 in the morning, they announced that they will be relaxing some of the penalties and timelines for late filing, for failing to have an IME completed on time or failure to comply with other court rules. Uh, That's important for my clients to know. Things like payer compliance issues, et cetera, are going to be relaxed in New York going forward. We did a webinar last week on COVID-19, compensability of those claims, and I've been answering a lot of questions about them. Uh, Today, our topic is fraud, uh, but if you have questions about coronavirus or compensability or anything else, I'm very happy to answer those as well at the end. And I will be uh, repeating the question out loud. I'll be reading it so if you want to type it in now, I'll answer it at the end. I will only say the first name of the person asking the question and then I will uh, repeat my answer so everyone can hear it. If I don't get to your question today, uh, keep typing them in uh, and I'll type you an answer or call you after the webinar to answer your questions. Uh, I did send an email to all of the firm's clients last week to let them know that all of our employees, we have 29 attorneys, we have 52 employees, Every single person here at Lois uh, will be uh, has already been issued equipment and is going to be able to handle their work remotely. We don't see any service interruption now, although there are a lot of interruptions around here in this tri-state area and that's everything from uh, some towns are on actual quarantine or lockdown. Uh, those don't really affect us, but they've now announced curfews, etc. In fact, uh, my office in New Jersey. Uh, now is under an 8 p.m. curfew. So we are seeing some real changes and disruptions start to roll out across the Tri-State area. I'll be doing everything possible to keep my clients informed as we sort of uh, deal with or see more restrictions or closures occurring. Uh, The most important takeaway is that right now in New York, no hearings are going to be interrupted. However, uh, filing dates are being relaxed, appeal deadlines relaxed, payer compliance relaxed, IME deadlines relaxed. Uh, Again, any questions about that? please feel free to reach out to me. All right, uh, if you're here today, I'm guessing you probably already have a copy of one of our handbooks. Uh, please know that we have uh, handbooks available, 2020 handbooks, completely revised for New York Workers' Compensation Defense, New Jersey Workers' Compensation Defense, Construction Defense, because those are uh, handled in a very specific way by us, and of course, Longshore Defense. So any questions you have about that, I'd be happy to send you a handbook. Uh, Our monthly schedule for webinars also changed in 2020. I just want to remind everybody uh, first Monday of the month is our construction defense webinar. That's at 12 Eastern standard. Uh, The second Monday of the month we do our risk transfer webinar and that covers risk transfer issues in both New Jersey and New York. Uh, We uh, that is led by Chris Major of my office. That's always the second Monday of the month and then the third and fourth Mondays of the month we do New York and then New Jersey focused webinars. All right. Let's jump into today's topic. Today's topic is fraud in New York. And just as a reminder, when you're typing in your questions to me, you can ask a question about any topic and I'll do my best to answer them. Uh, I'm thinking that today some of the cases and some of the topics we're gonna talk about today are gonna trigger some conversations and and hopefully some good questions. But again, I'm happy to answer your questions on any topic in workers' compensation law in New York or New Jersey or Longshore, whatever, it's on your plate. Uh, I'm just glad everyone's joined us today. I can see the attendees and we do have a lot of attendees today. So I'm imagining we're all working from home and and I I appreciate everyone calling in. All right. First, let's talk just very briefly about what is fraud in New York and why fraud is important. Sometimes fraud is just referred to as section 114 a, and that's kind of like our, our offhand way of repeating or, or or citing to the statutory authority for bringing up fraud as a defense to ongoing benefits in New York. Now, uh, New York, uh, defines fraud as, quote, knowingly making a false statement or representation as to a material fact, uh, which, by the way, material fact is for the purpose of obtaining uh, disability compensation or benefits. Uh, the burden of proof is on the party raising fraud, which is almost always the carrier, and the burden of proof is substantial evidence. Essentially, it doesn't have to be perfect evidence. Substantial evidence is just something that the judge can rely on. And the judge has a lot of discretion as to determine as to whether something is fraud or is not fraud. And I'm gonna talk about that in the cases we're gonna uh, examine coming up next. All right, first fun case I'm gonna look at today. Uh, this is called Vasquez versus Stuffy Auto Body Shop. And this is one of those ones that just really annoys me. And that's why I'm putting it in today's slides. This is a case that was cited last January. Uh, Vasquez uh, worked for an auto body shop and he claimed that he had a back injury in 2013. Uh, during the course and scope of his employment. He received medical benefits and lost time compensation. Uh, It was later uh, learned that by the carrier through investigation, really this is I think coworkers saying, Hey, by the way, the guy uh, is both working for a landscaping company and he may have started his own company and he's operating his own business. Uh, Carrier looked into it and says, wait a second. Uh, Not only is he working as a laborer in multiple landscaping businesses, but it looks like he's opened his own business. Now, Of course, this was brought to the board and uh, the carrier was able to say, hey, look, he's got paychecks from at least two different landscaping businesses uh, that he alleged to work, that we think he worked for. Now, of course, the claimant had a story and he could explain it all away. And usually when we raise fraud, all of a sudden they have like these great explanations. So he brought forth a bunch of explanations. One of his explanations I thought was kind of funny was that, hey, uh, those paychecks that I was um, cashing. Uh, Those paychecks, uh, that was uh, for my friend. He was working for the company and they just wrote the paycheck to me and I cashed it for him and I was just doing some banking for him. I'm just being a really nice guy. Now, during all of this, of course, his doctor is saying that he's disabled, he can't do any work. Meanwhile, they've got cash paychecks from one landscape employment. From the other employment, and that's the landscape employment that it looks like he started his own business. He claimed, yeah, I was getting paid by them, but really I was just taking pictures for them and doing some promotional work. For their landscaping business, uh, this uh, the the carrier says, "Look, you're not only not identifying it, but you know you're working in a landscaper as a la- as a laborer, and you're not revealing it to your own treating physicians. Now, in this case, because there was such overwhelming evidence, substantial evidence, he was found to be a fraud. And I'm going to put up here the name of his doctor, Dober- Dr. Robert Conciatori. If you do workers' comp in New York, you've seen that name many times, and that's why I'm identifying this physician, who's saying the guy is too disabled to do anything. Meanwhile, he's out there starting a landscaper business and working another one. Uh, the claimant attorney in that case is Kirk DeTest. Uh, Where I can identify these doctors who we see a lot in, in New York and seem to say the person's always disabled, can't work, but then they get busted for fraud, I'm going to put them into today's uh, presentation so that if you see these names come across your desk, Maybe you're thinking to yourself, "Uh uh-oh, red flag, this doctor doesn't ever seem to notice that people have returned to work. All right, next case. Uh, The next case is called Angora versus Wegmans Food. This case was decided this September. It's kind of an interesting case because uh, this is a warehouse worker. He had a shoulder injury that uh, required surgery. He's out of work for a year, and uh, it turns out uh, that he may have opened a bar. And they film him on doing covert surveillance, opening bar activities. Uh, now he admits that uh, he worked at the bar after a cross-examination says, quote, I received and entered his orders into a computer. I did serve food and drinks and take out the trash. Uh, but I, I, you know, I was really, this is my restaurant. So of course I'm helping out there. And he also admits that he didn't uh, it, uh, notify his physician uh, that the, uh that the claimant, uh, was working. He says, you know, it's my own bar. So am I really working there? I mean, I own it. Um, all right. The trial court did find fraud. Uh, the good news is that the appellate division, when this went up to it, uh, said that this work activity is significant enough to amount to a fraud. So, you know, we got these situations where the person's claiming, Hey, it's just passive. I'm just supervising people. I'm just entering a couple of things into a computer. You know, that counts. That's work. All right. Uh, next case. Uh, This is Galliano versus International Shops. This is a case that was decided in April. Uh, This is a right knee injury case for a 2000 date of loss. Uh, In that case, uh, of course, by the way, this is a New York workers' compensation case. So it starts as a right knee injury, and then over the course of the ongoing years, it's developed into more body parts. So by the time this case came to the attention of the court... Uh, they've already added in a consequential back injury and then another knee injury because, of course, if you injure one knee, why wouldn't you throw the other leg into it eventually? In 2005, the claimant was classified as having a permanent residual disability and medical treatment for life is now part of this case and the responsibility of the employer. Uh, they then learned. Uh, that they the claimant had a new injury, a new accident, a motor vehicle accident, in which they sought benefits and filed a claim for motor vehicle injuries to quote overlapping body parts, answer the same body parts. Uh, the carrier, of course, raises fraud when the claimant in 2014 is saying, "I need a knee replacement, a total knee replacement." Uh, this one, the carrier says, there's you know you had a subsequent motor vehicle accident you've gone and got medical treatment for that uh, accident, you filed a claim for that accident, you're getting paid over there, then you come back over here into workers' comp board and demand a total knee replacement. Uh, how do you think the appellate court ruled? Well, they found uh, that it was not a fraud because they had mentioned to the IME doctor that they had uh, a new accident. Now, here's what's strange about this case. The claimant has this new motor vehicle accident and then goes and gets six years of medical care and their own treating doctor, the the workers' compensation doctor, not a single record, not a single reference. There's nothing in the doctor's notes. Who is that, doctor? Robert Hecht. By the way, you'll probably see them in a lot of your workers' cop cases. So somehow this doctor is treating this claimant for a 2,000 loss in 2014. Now it's 14 years post-loss. And six years of every month treating this claimant, the claimant had a subsequent intervening accident involving the exact same body parts. Doesn't bother to tell the doctor allegedly. There's nothing in the doctor's notes about the subsequent injury and treatment. That was not found to be fraud by the appellate division. The appellate division said, yeah, well, you know, uh, she claims uh, that she told the doctor, and he just didn't write it down in the notes. Well, I mean, if I'm the defense attorney in that case, and I was not. I've been going after the doctor saying, how can we take anything this doctor takes seriously? This claimant's going out and getting six years of medical care with you post this new accident, you're not even mentioning it in any of your medicals. So that's one where, you know, really a close look at the medicals and then maybe going after the doctors, you can't go after the claimant. All right, next case, Persons versus Hallmar International. Uh, this is an April uh, 2019 decision. And of course we have this uh, poor construction worker uh, He uh, claims that uh, he was injured in 2015. He injured both his shoulders, both his hips, his neck, and he has uh, uh, post-traumatic stress disorder and depression and can barely move. He's walking around with a cane, okay? Uh, Very significant, very life-changing injuries if they actually occurred. Uh, Well, they didn't occur. Uh, It was learned that this claimant was still working as a volunteer firefighter. At the same time, they were alleged to be too disabled to return to their original employment. Um, They determined that he was working as a volunteer firefighter. And of course, volunteer work is not a defense to a fraud claim. Just because it's volunteer, just because it's unpaid, doesn't mean it's not work or work activity. And that would go for other things besides something like firefighting, which we would expect to be quite strenuous. Even things like volunteering at your church, uh, volunteering for a charity, doing light or intermittent work, that's not inconsistent with having some residual work capacity. Now, interestingly, uh, he, he, when he was challenged on this, and by the way, uh, the employer had covert surveillance showing them to be a firefighter and showing them responding to a firefighting call, he, quote, was not able to remember, close quote, what he did in his role as a firefighter. In other words, when he was up on the stand, they said, well, you're saying you've got to walk around with a cane and you can barely move and you're in significant pain all the time, uh, but you're volunteering as a firefighter. Tell us what your duties are for the firefighter. And, you know, you'd expect he would at least lie and say, well, all I did was answer the phone, you know, or maybe I watched the fire truck or something. Uh, but he said, no, I don't remember what I did as a firefighter. So they refreshed his recollection by showing him the videotape. Uh, they showed the, him responding to firefighting calls and being quite active. Now, interestingly, uh, when they videotaped him responding to his firefighting calls, he wasn't using a cane. In fact, he didn't look fine. Uh, so there's another case, and unfortunately, the name of the doctor who's treating him and, and saying that he's too disabled to return to work, but is uh, apparently he's fine and he's able to uh, respond to firefighting calls without a cane. The name of the doctor is nowhere in the decisions of the court papers, so I can't tell you which physician was missing this obvious fraud. But that's really a place I would look. Next case, uh, Stone v. Salisbury. This is a case that was decided last May. Uh, this is a claimant with a 2002. Uh, injury to the lower back, established an accepted claim, paid benefits until 2016. Uh, And then he was incarcerated. What was he incarcerated for? Operating a methamphetamines drug lab. Let me repeat that again. Uh, This is our poor disabled claimant recovering, receiving workers' comp benefits for 14 years, comma, while operating a meth lab. Is anybody getting annoyed yet about this? All right. He goes to jail. When he's in jail, of course, the benefits are suspended. There's a New York workers' compensation statute that says specifically, if you're accused of a crime, your workers' compensation benefits continue. But if you go to jail and are actually incarcerated, you're not available and ready to work, so benefits stop. He comes out of jail in 2017 and claims, all right, pay me, I'm, I'm out. Uh, I want my uh, my my wage replacement benefits. At this point, the carrier raises fraud and says, wait a second. Uh, you're not, uh, you were obviously working all those years that we were uh, paying you. And this is a clear case of fraud, right? Uh, I mean, you're operating a meth lab. You went to prison for doing that. Obviously, you're not just doing that for fun. You're doing, that's your job. Uh, Here's what happens. The appellate division says, no, just because he was operating a meth lab, all that means is, quote, he was He had two or more items of laboratory equipment and two or more precursors, chemical reagents or solvents, used in combination to create methamphetamines, close quote. Doesn't mean he was operating it for a business. So I guess we're supposed to expect or understand that he was just a hobbyist and he was just playing around with a chemistry set and innocently got sent to jail for operating a meth lab. All right, uh, bizarre, but that case was not found to be a fraud. Uh, and by the way, if, uh, if you're new to New York, welcome to New York, uh, the land of bizarre outcomes like that. Next case, uh, and here's another case where uh, you really got to say, well, do these people have any shame? This case was decided in July, uh, David Sweek versus City of Lackawanna. This is our firefighter lieutenant uh, who was injured in 2000, uh, continued to work as a firefighter, then injured again in 2007. And this time saying, I can no longer return to work. Uh, now, as a brief aside, in my opinion, once the person's brought one claim against you, you can expect the second one. It's coming, right? The highest uh, pro- uh, probabilistic deterministic factor of are you going to have a workers' compensation claim is have you had one previously, right? Uh, so here he is. He's our, our classic uh, uh, multiple claimant. He's got his second claim in 2007. He brings a claim for uh for permanency. Now, interestingly, then uh, this also shows the speed at which the workers' compensation system does not work in New York. In 2007, he has the second loss. The issue of permanency, what is his permanent residual disability does not get addressed until 2016, so nine years later. At that time, as part of the trial on the nature and degree of permanent residual disability, he is sent for both an independent medical examination by the defense And he sent for a functional capacity evaluation. The functional capacity evaluation is to see uh, what are his actual work restrictions, how much can he lift, how much can he not lift, et cetera. Uh, As a part of that, he also testified. and He testified consistent with his functional capacity evaluation, which, by the way, found him able to do only the most minimal work. I'm going to read what it said in the functional capacity evaluation. It said, quote, he's unable to lift or carry any weighted objects, close quote cannot pick up any objects from floor level, he's unable to kneel, crouch, reach for an object or complete any balance tests, has limited lumbar flexion and presented as unable to lift overhead due to the restricted range of motion. Also, he can only walk by report one half of a block, which takes him eight or 10 minutes before he has significant onset of back pain. He claims that he is unable to carry a box 25 feet. In his testimony, he testified that he can't lift a gallon of milk, he can't even lift his feet up off the floor to put on his socks, and spends most of his time sitting in a recliner. Does this sound like a lot of your claimants? Uh, Because this sounds like a lot of them to me. Uh, But wait, there's video. Uh, And in the video, the claimant is shown uh, not only uh, carrying on uh, lifting objects, he appears to be doing Uh, very physical manual labor uh, on his garage and either putting a floor in or doing some very significant renovation work in his garage. And there's videotape of this claimant uh, going to the store, buying building materials, buying lumber, loading trucks, unloading things, going to his house, loading materials, unloading machinery so that he can do uh, renovations on this garage. Uh, Of course, That is completely the opposite of what he told the physicians. That's completely the opposite, by the way, of what was found in the medical reports and his testimony, which he says he can't even lift a gallon of milk, which, by the way, weighs eight pounds. Uh, Unfortunately, uh, he was found to be a fraud. So uh, hopefully this is one where the good guys won one. Um, But unfortunately, there's nothing in the record or the case level decision that says who are these doctors who are finding him disabled, despite the fact that he's clearly carrying on Uh, in doing carpentry and other sites of home renovation. All right, Uh, that's a little bit of an overview of some very recent cases in New York workers' compensation law. You know, I get fraud cases and potential fraud cases brought to me a lot. Uh, And I'm I'm, I'm in the unfortunate position of often having to explain to my clients, you know, they're gonna be able to try to explain their way out of or challenge uh, a lot of the stuff, even things we find on video. And unfortunately, as I tried to demonstrate by bringing out the names of these sort of frequent flyer doctors we see a lot, doctors aren't really doing much by the way of objectively saying wait a second does this make sense person who claims that he sits in a recliner all day and can't even lift anything can't put on his own socks does this make sense uh, unfortunately you can't expect that all right uh we're into the live question and answer section so i'm hoping that i got a lot of interesting and fun questions to answer today let me open up that panel okay Kathleen asked the question and it's got nothing to do with fraud. I kind of expected I would get some COVID-19 questions. The first question is, uh, Greg, I wasn't on your last webinar. If a coworker tests positive for COVID-19 and then I test positive, is it compensable from lost time from work and medical care? All right, so this is the most uh, basic and standard question I'm getting a lot of time. And really there's two components to this uh, question. First is, uh, is COVID-19 infection, uh, which is, seems to be maybe from coworker to co-worker, that would be, I guess, the allegation, is that going to be compensable? And the answer is, in every state that I practice and Longshore, if the claimant can show something peculiar uh, or distinctive about the employment that's going to enhance or increase their risk of exposure, then, and by the way, there is a specific Uh, documented exposure, which results in infection, yes, it's likely to become uh, compensable. Now, both states, uh, New York has not issued any guidance on this. New Jersey has. Uh, New Jersey has issued some guidance by the Department of Labor. and Notice that's not the Division of Workers' Compensation, it's the Department of Labor, which essentially says the same thing. Uh, If there is an outbreak and it is located in a specific employment, then and only then uh, could those cases potentially be compensable. Now, Uh, I'm gonna break down the COVID-19 response into two specific categories. Category one is absolute clear incident of direct transmission. One uh, co-employee or or interaction with perhaps an infected patient in a medical setting or a first responder, especially. Uh, There's presumptions in both New York and New Jersey that those are gonna be compensable. New York for testing, New Jersey for compensability. Uh, In those circumstances, if there's a direct specific incident, and it results in infection, in general, those are gonna be compensable. However, if the only allegation is essentially, well, uh, by going to work, I had to take the subway and I was exposed to the general population, or for example, I work at the checkout counter at a busy retail location, everybody's out there buying toilet paper right now, and uh, I was just exposed to the general public, and I don't know when I picked it up or didn't pick it up, but I believe it's compensable, Um, then uh, the answer is, probably not going to be compensable. We're going to probably challenge this. I'll also report to you that in general, workers' compensation coverage does not extend to diagnostic testing to determine if someone has a condition or not. Okay, Uh, so next. uh, The next question I have is uh, from Doreen. Uh, Doreen asks, do you have a checklist of sorts of what steps should be taken after the judge finds 114a? Um, We've had our last few cases fall through the cracks as far as actually getting money back, in fact, we're now looking at doing Section 32s for zero dollars to make sure these cases go away for real. All right, Darren, I'm very sorry that that's going on. Uh, I'm going to tell you a couple of things from my personal experience. Number one is, yes, we've actually gone after claimants uh, and 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 sought uh, them to compensate us for benefits that were wrongfully obtained, and, and that's possible. In fact, we've we did that and had to actually get a sheriff to execute on somebody's Uh, bank account recently. Uh, But here's what happens functionally after a finding of 114A fraud. Number one, the entitlement to medical care is generally not stayed, but the entitlement to cash benefits is generally stayed. And that's super powerful. Once you've got the person saying, hey, it doesn't matter what we do here. You're not getting any more cash money. Guess what? Those cases go away, right? Because the person's like, what am I doing this for? I mean, they're in it to get money, people. Let's be frank here. Okay, so number one thing is you're going to get a stay on ongoing payments of compensation, and that could be an award of temporary wage compensation or permanent residual disability. So that's super powerful in order to close cases. Step two is then referring it to the fraud prosecutor, which we have a great one here in the state of New York, and we've made uh, fraud referrals to the fraud prosecutor, who then goes after the claimant criminally, which is great. Uh, And I've specifically done that in situations involving public employment. You know, unfortunately, I've seen. Some really terrible frauds, and we did an example today of firefighters. Actually, there's two firefighter examples, but they're also rampant amongst the uh, public safety or police community. Uh, in fact, I've got one I just got a fraud decision against the, a former chief of police. So, you know, that's where we see those things going, and there's, uh, I think, a very useful um, illustrative effect, you know, a demonstration to the other co workers, the colleagues in the employment that see this guy, uh, they see this person who's stealing from them, who's doing something they they know they're not going to be doing. Now, when do we find out a lot of times about a claimant committing fraud? And the answer is, it's a pissed off coworker. I mean, one of my most famous cases, this is a case I litigated in New Jersey, coworkers came forward and said, hey, guys, uh, you you, you know Dougie over there, uh, who's been out of work for a couple months now, and he says he hurt his knees? Well, he invited us to go watch him be a professional wrestler. Because Douglas Becker was working as a professional wrestler and winning titles while he was out of work, uh, working for us at Western Pest Control as a pest control technician. So, you know, sometimes the best source of information are these pissed off colleagues. And I'll tell you something else. When one of these employees brings a fraudulent claim against the employer and the employer goes back at him and says, nope, we know this isn't real. I think that has got a very strong, good instructional effects for all of the other employees and says, essentially, we don't tolerate this here. I'll also say another thing, uh, lying. Judges don't like it. Judges don't like being misled. We all understand that every claimant is just like you and I were probably when we were little kids, you know, you're, you're homesick from school on Monday and, and your mom's really nice to you. And she brings you chicken soup and they set up the little TV in your bedroom so you can watch cartoons all day. and It's great. And then the second day, uh, you really are better and you're ready to go back to school, but you're like, let me see if I can just stretch this out just a little bit and get that extra day. You know, I think judges are pretty leeway about the kind of basic constant malingering we see in our workers' compensation cases, but judges don't like being lied to. They don't like being misled and they don't like it when doctors are being misled or lied to, and they will punish a claimant for doing it. So that's something to be thoughtful. Um, Kim asks a great question. Greg, as a defense attorney, at what point do you want to know about any surveillance obtained? In some states, defense counsel having knowledge could impact the strategy of the claim outcome. Will knowledge impact negatively defense, uh, will, will knowledge negatively impact the defense strategy, yes or no? So in New York, no. In New York, you can send me as much surveillance as you want. And unless I decide to use it in court, we never disclose that to our adversary. Same thing in New Jersey. Send me all the... Surveillance, or do all the covert surveillance you want. It's not going to be revealed. My file is essentially a black box. Now, where that gets a little tricky is where there's also a GL, a general liability or a civil claim filing. At the same time, there may be some disclosure requirements that I have to be mindful of. Uh, that's literally why my partner, Tashia, wrote a book on defending your jurisdiction claims. That's claims where you've got a civil claim going in one jurisdiction and a workers' comp claim going in another jurisdiction. She literally wrote the book on that, and that's where we really are being very careful and trying to coordinate how we're going to disclose some of this information, how we're going to use it, what court we're going to use it in best, et cetera. As to when I want to know about surveillance, well, in general, we train our attorneys here. First of all, we should be driving the bus on that. If we think there's any opportunity that surveillance could make a meaningful impact in a case, we should be driving that as defense attorneys. We should be suggesting it, recommending it, uh, helping coordinate it if need be, etc. cetera. So I wanna know immediately and I wanna know early really so we can help. Uh, Patricia asks a great question. Would operating a not-for-profit business conduct, be considered fraud if there's no record of income? Absolutely. So I did cover uh, people who are doing purely volunteer work on behalf of, for example, a church uh, or a charity. Uh, we've got cases in which the claimant was working as a coach, a volunteer coach for a youth soccer league. Well, let me tell you something. If you can show up at all the practices and run the practices, stand on the sidelines and blow the whistle and tell the kids what to do, organize all the parents, send out all those texts, show up at the events, drive back and forth, do all of this stuff, that's work. Okay? And there's no way you could do that, but you can't actually do your normal job. So uh, we've actually been very successful or cases where there is no actual record of income. Uh, The record of income is not a prerequisite. It's just the, are you doing work? Are you misleading your position? Are you misleading your employer about your actual capacity to work? That's enough to establish a fraud. All right. Uh, Great questions. Those are all the questions I got so far. Uh, If you have a question I haven't answered yet, please feel free to send it to me. Next month on April 20th, we'll be meeting again, and I'll be talking about recent case law developments on employee status. Where we're even going to talk about things like who's an independent contractor, who isn't? What about the gig economy? What about part-time workers? I'm talking all about that uh, from a defense standpoint. Thanks for joining me today. I hope everybody stays safe. Uh, maintain your social distance. Keep coming to our webinars. You can't get infected over the internet. Okay, everybody. Thank you very much. Have a great day.